your host for Lacrosse Talk PM, Rick Solo. All right, welcome to a Friday of Lacrosse Talk PM. How would I forget that it's Friday? 608 785 7914. That's the talk and text line. UW Lacrosse political science professor Dr. Anthony Tragoski is on the road, so he's He's calling from the Twin Cities area, but he's he's uh, nice enough to you know take an hour out of his day, even if he's you know sort of away. Uh, thanks a lot, man. Well, I, I'm in Chicago. Actually, oh, you're in Chicago. Right? My I'm, bad. I'm in Chicago for a political science conference, so I'm hanging out with a bunch of political science geeks and happen to be at the site of the 2024 Democratic National Convention. Oh, that's it was right. Just announced that the Democratic National Convention will be held 90 miles away from where the Republican National Convention is in Milwaukee. So my wife and daughter are in the Twin Cities, and then I'm here hanging out with a bunch of political science nerds this weekend. Okay, so I was kind of right because I knew I knew your wife was in Twin Cities because, but but I didn't make the correlation. Also. You're nerds, not geeks. I think you're nerds. When you when you have like degrees and doctorates in political science, you become nerds at some point. I would be the geek. I don't have any like education in politics here. So when it comes to this field, I'm a geek. Well, you're 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 a political junkie, as Ron Kind called you. <laughs> we're all we're you're, all political you're junkies. A, a junkie and a geek. I'll be the nerd. How about that? Yeah, definitely. All right. So six zero eight seven eight five seven nine one four is the talk and text line. If you caught that, I said it really fast, but. Uh, we we got an hour here to get through uh, so much information, um, and I will see what kind of rants I I go on because like I you know sometimes we have we have some of the stuff that we need to talk about and then like I derail the show uh, because I want to get your opinion on certain things that you don't even expect me to ask. But um, I think the the big thing that we need to talk about at some point during the show is another restaurant. A national chain, I believe, is opening on Monday, right? This is Five Guys is a national chain, I believe, right? Yeah, Five Guys. It's opening in Onalaska on Monday. I mean, that's probably the biggest news we can talk about today, Rick. <laughs> I'm really excited for Five Guys. I used to eat it all the time when I was in college. I went to college at the University of Minnesota, and the Five Guys opened on campus, and I hit that place up all the time. Because as sort of a broke college student, I loved how they just dumped the French fries into the bag. Oh, and, that- you know, made made you dig through the pile of fries in order to get to your juicy, greasy burger. All right, so we're going to talk about, and I have I have takes on all this stuff because who can't relate to just you know unlimited fries? So we'll get to that in a minute. And the other really fun story that I wanted to talk about. Is with when we talk about baseball a little bit, the the pitch clock and some of the other things in baseball, reeling in the game times by like twenty thirty minutes, and you know you you hear people kind of complain the games are too fast now, which is always really funny because I can't even sit through an NFL game because the the play clock is thirty five seconds between plays, um, and now we've kind of eliminated some of that in baseball, but now beer sales are being extended because the games are too fast, you know, because, you know, people can't get their drink on. So that's another thing we'll talk about. Uh, has nothing to do with capitalism, I'm sure. Um, some political stuff, though, I want to get on with Tregoski. Uh Baldwin declaring, I mean, Baldwin declaring a, a run for, for Senate or re-election, that's not a big surprise. 
Um, but it, or is it? Is it a big surprise there, or is there anything unique about Tammy Baldwin calling calling this out now? I don't know. She had been widely expected to announce her candidacy for a third term. We know that Tammy Baldwin is a tireless campaigner. She is viewed as being very politically savvy. One thing she does, Rick, is she targets different areas of the state with different issues. She is very shrewd and very smart in how she focuses on those local issues. And so while she was in the House of Representatives, she had this reputation as kind of a Madison liberal. And the big question was if she would be able to expand her statewide appeal so that she could reach voters outside of those typical Democratic Party strongholds of Milwaukee and Madison. And in the election of 2018, she definitely proved that she could expand her appeal statewide. She had a very strong victory over State Senator Leah Vukmir. And right now, Rick, the big struggle for Republicans is trying to figure out who is going to run against her. That's a big sign of a strength as a candidate when no one really wants to run against you. The Republicans really want Congressman Mike Gallagher from the Green Bay area to run against her. Yeah, let's let's get into that. He may not run. Yeah, let's get into that in a a minute here, Chagoski. I I did see this from the Republican Party of Wisconsin as they uh, they just put They just post some stuff to get you fired up. The Biden-Baldwin agenda, passing the bill for trillions in wasteful spending to hardworking Wisconsinites and prioritizing a woke agenda over kitchen table issues. Tammy Baldwin was in La Crosse yesterday, I believe. Yeah, yesterday. uh, And she was at the Child's Learning Center talking about the funding that the Biden-woke agenda got for mental health. So that was, it's kind of a a weird time to post that when, when she's in La Crosse promoting Uh, federal funding for mental health issues. She's really good at that kind of stuff, Rick, talking about how federal funding is going to go to specific areas for specific projects. That's what I mean when she says, when when I say that she really is quite quite savvy at the local politics well you know kind of the old school the old school conventional wisdom is that all politics is local and that it's all about what you can deliver for the local people and you know for for you know right rightly or wrongly she seems to buy into the idea that all politics is local it has served her well more and more we do see the focus on those national culture war issues. We do see more of a national bent to how people think about politics. But Tammy Baldwin's bet is that she can focus on those local issues and really buy into that old slogan that all politics is local. That's UW Lacrosse political science professor Dr. Anthony Tragoski. I think I, you say everyone knows this, but A, I didn't know she was like quote unquote a savvy uh, fundraiser. And and then you 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 talk about um, you know, she's, she, she likes to, her, her, her way of politicking, I guess, is to got, dive into local issues. That's, that should be all the politicians. Like, I don't know if that's her being smart or just her being real. When, when she puts out, we talked about this earlier in the week with uh, Democratic Party Chair William Garcia on the cross. Um, when, when, when the omnibus comes out, Tammy Baldwin will send out a news release with links to all the things that are local that are in this, like, you know, 500 billion, whatever the, um, like, trillion dollar omnibus thing, right? The thing you can't navigate because it's a trillion dollars. 
she gives you like 30 bullet points, different things that uh, affect Wisconsin. And then on the flip side, like Ron Johnson's, um, because because who's in charge, right? Biden's in charge. Ron Johnson's news releases, I'm not signing this. It's too big. We only had a day to read it. So there's there's two different ways of going at it, right? There there are the two ways to fight uh, to to politic, right? When you're trying to uh, keep yourself in office. Absolutely, Rick. Ron Johnson focuses on his battles against the Biden administration, and Ron Johnson always tends to focus on the overall price tag. So he doesn't really delve into the specifics. He focuses on the contribution that these bills might make to the national debt. He focuses on that overall level of spending and really does not delve into the details because, frankly, he's much more concerned about that overall level of spending. But as we talked about, Tammy Baldwin really focuses on those local impacts. So this amount of money going to this part of Wisconsin for this project, that amount of money going to that part of Wisconsin for that project. Like you said, that bullet-pointed list that she provides, and it really has, I think, paid off. I think both strategies can work, honestly, because people might be frustrated with the level of spending by the national government. They might be frustrated with the approach to the budget in the national government. So that's the Ron Johnson approach. But at the same time, people want those local benefits. They want to feel like they are being heard. They want to feel like their needs, their area is being taken care of. So that's the Tammy Baldwin approach. You want you want super savvy is you do both. You take Tammy Baldwin's bulletin point and then maybe on the flip side you also go and do some other bullet points. Here's where I don't agree. And there's four hundred million dollars for this and that. And then you could go you could go all in on both ways and then people wouldn't know where you're coming from. Oh my God, I can't vote for Tammy. She's she wants this federal. Oh, wait, she's against this federal funding. I don't know what to do anymore. Um, all right. We're going to continue here. We got a couple of texts to get to uh, UW lacrosse political science professor. Chergoski is going to stick with us. If you got questions, 608-785-7914. We'll be back. It's kind of a slow burn here. But it's like perfect for right. It's like not exciting, but it's perfect for like days like all week. When I wake up in the morning, love. <laughs> it's me and Chagoski when we wake up together. <laughs> All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Tokyo. I'm going to play it until the refrain, so because we got to get to the refrain. I should have did this before. Uh, UW Lacrosse political science professor Dr. Anthony Chagoski in here with me. Well, he's not in here. He's on the phone because he's in Chicago. We got to talk about this too. What you're doing in Chicago and what this kind of party looks like with political science professors getting together. Uh, burning Chicago to the ground, I'm sure. But we're getting here. We're getting here to the refrain. This is what we everybody feels like today. It might be too chill, Tregoski. Is this song too chill for right now? Oh, I don't think so. It was a great day here in Chicago. The weather was stunning today. All right, you're at a political science conference. What what is a political science conference? Or what what kind of what kind of trouble are you guys getting into? What kind of schemes? Are you hashing out, like, what is it like? It sounds, it sounds for political junkie like me, it sounds kind of interesting, but also I could see it being like really boring PowerPoints and I don't know, tell me. It's kind of a mix. There are some pretty boring PowerPoints. There are a lot of like cool roundtables. Well, cool from my point of view. (laughs) Essentially, we, we kind of share what we're working on. 
Uh, it's, you know, we're always working on new research. We're always working on our teaching. We're always trying to come up with new ideas, come up with new insights about the world, trying to find new ways to study politics and government. And so this is kind of a venue for us to get feedback from one another and share some ideas. So I've got a couple projects that I'm presenting, and then I'm providing feedback to some others. And some of my colleagues from UWL are here and people from our around the country are here. So it's just a big nerd fest here in Chicago for political science. All right. You told me this. uh, Maybe you or William Garcia told me this. uh, To be a professor at the university level, or I guess that's the the, the same thing, um, you you don't really get summers off. You have to work on something to get published or something like that. You have to work on something and then it has to get into some kind of, I don't know, can you, am am I on the right path here that you have to you actually have to do work in the summer, and it doesn't sound like it's easy work. Yeah, no, we don't take summers off, Rick. We focus, well, for me, I focus a lot on redeveloping my courses and trying to improve my courses, but all year round we work on research and so trying to get things published in peer-reviewed journals. The peer review process means that other academics, other professors review our work to decide if it is worthy of being published in a scholarly journal. And so we work on research in okay. for journals. We oh. work on books. Hold uh, up, and hold so up, hold up. We've got you, all that kind of going on. How much of this wink, wink, you know, I got you. you I'll peer review yours and you peer review mine. And we, then we, you know, then we hit our quota. <laughs> Oh, I, I wish it was that easy, Rick. That would be great. The thing is, it's all anonymous. Oh. So when I submit an article to a journal and I get three reviews back, I have no idea who those reviewers are. Do they and know who you are? And is not attached to okay. my paper. So it's all anonymous. Oh, and then um, all, and then are you, you know, where I, I kind of joke about the wink-wink deal, but even if it wasn't anonymous, are you guys... Probably your own worst and your your own worst critics too, right? Like maybe maybe you guys like no, this is a because you're you're too into the details or something. Oh, definitely, that can be a big challenge in getting something published. So the peer review process is very difficult. It is difficult to satisfy three anonymous individuals who are reading your work. So uh, believe me, it is no small task to get something published in a scholarly journal. And so, yeah, that's why we devote a lot of time and energy to it. And so we do our best. And that's why I'm here to get feedback on some of my ideas so I can hopefully get these ideas published. But, but yeah, that's a big part of what I use my summers for, to work on books and to work on uh, journal articles and stuff like that i don't unless it unless it's really cool but what you're working on now but is there something where this is something that i worked on and it's like the coolest thing that i ever got you know published or whatever yeah rick i i've had a few publications i've had i've had some things get published and you know one thing that i've worked on is are things related to teaching methods and so one thing that i like to do is test out new teaching methods and then rigorously analyze them, trying to improve student learning as much as possible, and then publish the findings so hopefully others can learn from those findings and maybe adopt those strategies for themselves. And so I'm really involved 
in the teaching and learning community, trying to help improve political science education, because, I mean, it's just so important to educate the next generation about civics. But I also do a lot of research on Congress. I do research on campaigns and elections. And so I've had a number of things get published on those topics. And and so that's kind of what I've got in the works. I've got a paper coming in a, a book about kind of how congressional explaining the outcomes of congressional elections. So like why do certain candidates win while others lose? But then I've got other projects on just how to improve student learning because I just care about that so much. So I've got a number of things going on, and uh, you know we're kind of getting to the end of the semester, so I'll be able to uh, hopefully get some of those things published. But uh, yeah, that's kind of what we're focused on here is just trying to help improve everyone's work and trying to do what we can to advance the cause of political education. This is where I derail the show because now I just I have all I I even wrote them down so I wouldn't forget because I have a like four second memory. All right. So when you're trying to improve on teaching methods and, um, you know, some teachers can just be set in their ways. We're going to do the same thing forever. And it's 40 years later and we never evolve as a teacher, like as a society and education, maybe, so to speak. But um, you're a political science professor, so you're teaching. I feel like if I was a science professor, I could do the Bill Nye science guy stuff, right? Like I could blow up a volcano. I could get kids outside. We could do, you know, we could, you could do interactive stuff. Is there a way to do that in political science? Or are you just sitting in the classroom and you're, you're hoping your kids don't all fall asleep or pull out their phones? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Rick, because a lot of what I work on is testing out simulations and interactive methods. I've had some papers published on ways to use interactive learning. And in fact, I'm presenting a paper tomorrow on using a simulation to help students understand the federal budget. We were just talking about that. And it's really important for students to learn about government spending and taxes and where their tax tax money goes and the national debt and borrowing and the deficit and all of the things that the government spends money on. And so I really wanted to improve how students learned about the budget. And so I developed a game, I developed a simulation, and then I tested it out. And so and that's actually one thing that I'm working on, uh, going to be presenting here tomorrow to uh, hopefully get some feedback for my own benefit, but also to help others maybe teach students about the budget. So yeah, we make heavy use of simulations in our classes. It's one of my favorite parts to have that kind of cool experience where students are like, wow, I'm experiencing, I feel like I'm experiencing politics through this game. I feel like this is a real life version of what we're learning in class to have that kind of authentic learning experience. So it's a big part of what we do. Well, and you take a national thing, the federal budget, a thing that's kind of like, eh, so, and giant, right? That thing was a trillion dollars, I think, one of those, or more than that. 1.9 trillion, that number sticks out. There, We passed a couple of different things that were trillions of dollars, only trillions. It's hard, so, and then it's like so big you can't, but did do you do like the Tammy Baldwin thing where you break it down? These, This is how the federal budget affects us, and then, you know, then your kids are kind of, oh, crap, this thing like literally, like, oh, there's fundings here for bridges. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, Rick, it's funny that we talked about the Ron Johnson approach and the Tammy Baldwin approach, because the simulation that I've designed uses both of those approaches. So one of the goals that students have 
is to try to understand the debt and to try to understand the overall level of government spending. We talked about that as the Ron Johnson approach, Mm -hmm. how he doesn't really talk about the details of the budget. He really focuses on that big dollar amount. He focuses on the debt. He focuses on kind of the headline-grabbing numbers. But then I also have students make difficult choices about individual policies. And so I give students like 50 or 60 different policies that they can choose from, and each one has an impact on the debt. It has an impact on taxes and spending. And so there they can see, like, the real-world impacts. And so I think it just speaks to the importance of both approaches, right, to understand the overall picture when it comes to taxes and spending, but then to also understand the individual policies and how those policies affect us and how we might make difficult choices regarding those policies. So yeah, it's kind of funny we talked about that because my game actually, by simulation, uh, to does both the overall spending approach, like how can we maybe improve the situation with the national debt? And then secondly, how can we understand the individual policy choices that go into the budget situation? Yeah, I'm doing the same thing. I got a game about housing. It's called Monopoly. I don't know. <laughs> it's about that. landlords and rent and uh, going bankrupt. Um, yeah, I have I have more questions, but we gotta. We, I think we gotta move on. But it is interesting. I, I always interesting when you talked about COVID because you talked about how some students learn better on Zoom because there's not a you know 45 eyes on them while at, while you ask the stupid question, right? Because all questions are stupid. But um, that would be me. I would love to be on a Zoom class because then I can ask a question without feeling all the eyes on me as I sit in a studio and people listen on the radio. Um, but the other thing I wanted to know is if it real quick is it easier to teach politics now political science now because everyone's engaged or is it harder to teach politics now because politics isn't civic anymore there's there the the rules seem to be changing we're going everything's a lawsuit so i find it personally easier and that really gets to the level of student interest in politics and rick coming off of the spring election in wisconsin there was so much talk about the incredible turnout among college students. And so the students are really interested in politics. And for me, that makes it easier. And I also set the expectation at the start of the semester that we're not really going to be debating things in my class, right? So we're not going to be debating if Biden is a good or a bad president. We're not going to be debating if the Democrats are awesome or the Republicans are awesome. We're going to be trying to understand politics and trying to develop an appreciation of the role of politics in our society and the important roles that elections and government play in our society. And so I kind of approach it from that lens. I say, look, we're not going to be having the cable news shout fest in this class. We're going to be trying to understand and appreciate the role of politics in our society. And that really brings the temperature down a lot. And you add that into the student interest. And I think it's a great time to be teaching politics. Okay, last thing, and then I'll, we'll take a break here. Um, you talk about, okay, you, you've created this game. It's about federal spending, the deficit. And we always talk about, you and I always talk about how that stuff is kind of out of our hands. I understand that we can vote and that's in, and, and make our voices known that way. But why not create a game like that, but it's city council or county board? 
And then, and then, hey, the because you want your your students to understand that these are the most important races: school board, county board, city council. These meetings every month are the most important ones in your. I, I understand it's probably not as exciting, and maybe kids will be less engaged there, or students will be less engaged. But I don't know. Just just the thought. Yeah, Rick. You know, one thing that we focus on, even in my classes on American national government, are the important roles of state and local government. And actually, my department, the political science department at UWL, offers a class specifically on state and local government and offers multiple classes on local government. So we try to cover all of our bases, but it is difficult because we've got this system of government where you've got the national government, yeah. the state governments, and then the local governments. So we've got to try to cover all our bases, and it's kind of hard sometimes. Well, and you're right, because you're teaching a class, and this is for that class, which wouldn't it wouldn't be local politics. Anyway, we've got to take a break. We'll be back with UW Lacrosse Political Science Professor Dr. Anthony Tregoski. All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM. 608-785-7914 is the talking text line. You, Lacrosse, political science professor, Dr. Anthony Chergoski, hanging out with us before he heads to a fancy dinner with a bunch of political science nerds to talk about, (laughs) I don't even know, what, like, do you guys talk politics when you're at dinner, or do you, uh, I don't know, you're you're probably not talking about the playoffs, the NBA playoffs. We talk politics. I'm actually going out to dinner with a colleague from Marquette, so it's kind of fun to share notes and compare how things are going in different parts of the state. How come Marquette didn't put out a poll, like, just as we headed into the Supreme Court race? Did you notice that, or did I miss it? No, you're right, Rick. We did not have any public polling regarding the Wisconsin State Supreme Court race. Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce put out a poll, and then they, quote-unquote, leaked it to the press. They were very pro-Dan Kelly, and so unsurprisingly, their poll was quite favorable for Dan Kelly, but we didn't have any sort of unbiased or neutral observers put out any polls, and so it was a big guessing game how the election was actually going to turn out. We kind of made some assumptions based on how the primary election in February went. We made some assumptions based on the campaign spending, but yeah, you're right. There was not any public polling of the state Supreme Court race. Yeah, Marquette University Law School always puts out a poll, or maybe not always, but it seemed weird that, I don't know, I don't if that was just they didn't get the rec- response they wanted you could go conspiracy theory there or they just didn't get enough people or they were on vacation it's just i don't know be worth like getting them on you can talk to your talk to your marquette guy right like maybe he knows (laughs) (laughs) um all right so more importantly we got to get to some of this important stuff five guys opening monday on in lacrosse right right there where chipotle is right there where chick-fil-a is um you know god forbid if you see a yellow school bus pull into that area while you're trying to get something to eat because that's going to be a popular landing spot for kids coming home from a game or something like that or going yeah coming home from it wouldn't be going to a game like in my ba- high school basketball career we would eat spaghetti right be- like right after school at three o'clock and then go play basketball full of spaghetti uh not the smartest way but five guys their their thing throw the fries in the bag so you get your and are you talking like i haven't eaten there so are you talking like any time so even if you're eating in, do you eat in at Five Guys? Is it dine-in? 
You can eat in. You can also get it to go. And how you know it's a good to go restaurant or how you know it's a really great greasy burger joint is you can just see the grease <laughs> on the bag as you take it home. But their deal is you throw fries. Their, their, their shtick is they throw a pile of fries. You, maybe they have a little cup for the fries, but then you just maybe they don't. And then they just dump the fries in the bottom of the bag. What's funny about it, Rick, based on my memory of eating Five Guys many times as a college student, is that they do include like a little cup for fries, but it's obviously there to not really serve much of a purpose because there may be a couple fries that end up in the cup, but then they just dump them all over your burger. Yeah, and this is a this is a great strategy by Five Guys, and one that you know used to be a thing when you went to like McDonald's or something. Uh, you would get done, and then you'd go to grab maybe a napkin into the bottom of the bag when you're done, and you're like, oh, baby, there are a couple more fries in here I can eat. And it was like uh, you, you you hit the jackpot. And and I noticed that that isn't happening. I don't know if they streamline their their way of putting everything in the bag, but this needs to happen at every restaurant. There are things that I say every restaurant needs to do in terms of like just to, to get a little bit more popular, McDonald's, you got to start throwing fries in the You got to dump the fries have to spill out the cup. And so there are some in the bottom of the bag. That should be a prerequisite for every, every restaurant that has, you know, this kind of style of takeout. Absolutely, Rick. I think that every every chain needs its little special feature like this. And goodness knows, we've talked about having free chips and salsa, and we could have free breadsticks. We just need something that, you know, that, that just is the special feature of the chain. Do they dump the fries in the bag? Do they give you all the breadsticks you can eat? Or do they give you free chips and salsa? I I think it should be one of the three. The restaurant that does all of these will be the greatest restaurant in the history of the world, (laughs) and it will go out of business so fast. In fact, the restaurant that doesn't even do chips and salsa, but does chips and queso. Imagine getting chips and queso. (laughs) And you you would probably never... First of all, you would be full before you finished eating. And and second of all, like you would, you probably wouldn't even get the. Uh, I get the cheapest meal because I'm just going to fill up in chips and, and queso. Uh, Joe's calling in. Joe, you got a take here on Five Guys or any of this stuff? I've got your Five Guys cheat sheet for you. All right, so, cool. Uh, although the fries are fresh, I mean they keep the potatoes right in the eating area, the bags of potatoes, so you know it's fresh. They're cutting them up, they're cooking them fresh. But skip the fries. Go ahead, get yourself the burger. And I'm not a vegetable guy, but I'll tell you what. Their burger is conducive to vegetables for the ultimate flavor. So they have two separate um, choices, choice boards for vegetables. But what you want to do is get all the vegetables on both choice boards. Get that stacked on that burger and then get yourself a cookies and cream milkshake. And that is the cheat sheet. Two five guys. So no fries at all? What are you talking? What kind of are you communist? No fries? Hey, I'm a fry guy, but I mean, the fries are fresh, like but, I say. And but what are you old. talking I about? Mean, they've got the, the skins on them and everything, and they're hot and they're fresh. But they're just, it's just, I, I just, it doesn't complement the burger. What complements the burger is get every vegetable choice that's up there on both boards and get that on that burger. That is the best burger you will have. Okay, so lettuce, tomato, onions. Pickles. Oh no, there's there's 20, 20 or some vegetables. You get that all on there. Cauliflower, broccoli. Like what are we talking? Like I don't even know. Tragoski, you know what kind of vegetables are you putting on a burger that I wouldn't normally think of? 
Well, I'm just thinking that this burger is practically healthy food at this point no, with yeah, all these is, vegetables. I like it. I like where Joe's coming from here. <laughs> all right, it, it, is, it ends up being about a five-pound salad with a hamburger in it, but <laughs> it is delicious. Okay, new restaurant idea. We sell salads, but they're hamburger salads, so I guess that would be a taco salad, wouldn't it? <laughs> see, see, Rick, we just need now, we need a hamburger salad with fries dumped all over the burger and then all you can eat breadsticks and all you can eat all you can eat what was the other one chips, and salsa. chips and salsa well and then uh, well now, and then on top of that noted we are not coming at this from the perspective of making a profit <laughs> we are coming at this from the perspective of the consumer very much so yeah the consumer is going to flood the gates they're going to be here but the problem is if they eat in in the restaurant they're going to be here for an hour and a half there, you know, and then the free refills, that's going to get tough. But I guess if we charge, if, you know, if we kept, kept giving them margaritas for five bucks each, uh, we might make our money back. Um, on top of that burger salad and, and the, and the chips and the salsa, you dump queso on top of all of that. So then you're just, yeah, but see, 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 this is like this, 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 this show is turning into Cooley Region Cooks, Rick. What's yeah. going on here? Yeah, that's fine. I mean, we got to do it. Everyone can relate. I mean, we can't all relate to the politics of things, because then. but everyone <laughs> can relate to what should we be eating with five guys opening. But I, I do still say every restaurant should have a shtick like this, and if it's five guys throwing fries in a bag, that's great. But if you're just a regular old like burger joint, you could still do chips and salsa. I feel like how many times, Dragoski, do you go to the Mexican restaurant just so you can load up on chips and salsa and hang out for a little bit and then get your meal and then eat like a quarter of your meal and take the rest home because you ate too many chips and salsa? I do that once a week. Oh, that is 100% of the times that I go to my favorite Mexican restaurant. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to a Mexican restaurant that you sit down in. If they don't give you chips and salsa, I'll just go to the one that does. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, shout out to all of the restaurants that do that. You're giving the people what they want. Yeah, but I'm saying like you go to Culver's and they bring you chips and salsa. <laughs> <laughs> How does chips and salsa pair with a butter burger? It's fine, man. It's fine. Nobody cares. We chips and salsa or popcorn, like popcorn. Just get popcorn. All right, we'll be back. <laughs> All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM. Just going to wrap up here with UW Lacrosse political science professor Dr. Anthony Chergoski, political science professor slash foodie. Uh, <laughs> we spent. I just realized we we talked Tammy Baldwin a little bit, but we didn't really talk about politics a whole lot, except for how we teach politics, which is completely fine by me, um, because I think uh, you know, like it's it's just it's Friday. It's a little bit funner conversation to have about five guys. And also a funner conversation to have when Major League Baseball teams like the Brewers and the Twins are extending beer sales through the eighth inning because I don't know. Because why? Is there a reason? Because, I mean, I get the games are going too fast, but we we can't get enough beer in us. We got to extend it. I don't get the reasoning. Yeah, Rick, we've talked about the pitch clock, how the average game time in Major League Baseball is down by about 31 minutes this year. And so that's a result of this new clock where the pitchers and the batters have to be uh, they have to be in the, they have to be ready to go. It kind of picks up the pace of play. And so now, maybe with a shorter game time, there's less time to sell beer. And so the Brewers and the Twins and some other teams have extended beer sales. I guess before they had to cut off beer sales at the seventh inning, and now they're cutting off beer sales at the 
eighth inning. So you have another inning to get some beer in you to get it's, a cold one. It just doesn't make sense. So the AP story writes writes it and talks about the teams needing to extend beer sales because te- fans aren't having enough time to enjoy a beer. The games are still two and a half hours long. If you don't have time to enjoy a beer, that's kind of on you. Get there early and drink all the beer you want in the parking lot. Nobody in this story says that Major League Baseball teams aren't selling enough beer. They're not making enough money on beer. They got to pay the workers and they got to pay the workers their beer money. And if the workers aren't selling enough beer, then we're not making enough of a profit. So we got to extend beer sales. And a pitcher for the Phillies, I believe, uh, says, hey, we need we don't need to extend beer sales. People will be leaving like closer to inebriated and driving home. We need to reel it back to the sixth inning. He's completely right. We just. Yeah, Rick. <laughs> Matt Strame, uh, Matt Stram, Strom, a pitcher yep. with the Philadelphia Phillies, Strom, he said that the reason we stopped it in the seventh inning was to give our fans time to sober up, sober up and drive home, right? So now with a faster-paced game and me just being a man of common sense, if the game is going to finish quicker, would we not move the beer sales back to the sixth? Inning to right. give our time to give fans time to sober up. Instead, we're going to the eighth, and now you're putting our fans and our family at risk driving home with people who just drank beers 22 minutes ago. I think he has a point, honestly. Yeah, I mean it's definitely, and none of the, neither of the stories mentioned capitalism or making money on beer sales. It's just kind of funny because that's the whole point. And uh, and and then yeah, but also maybe don't drive home inebriated if you're going to be if you're going to be the one that drives, then don't drink beer. Or have a beer in the first inning and then be done with it. It's such a simple solution. Hey, drinking and driving is illegal. Bre- mandatory breathalyzer for everyone that leaves the stadium. And real quick, uh, Rick, another baseball story while we're at it. It looks like that Brewers plan to devote $290 million of the budget surplus to upgrades to the stadium is definitely dead on arrival in the legislature. Robin Voss, the Speaker of the State Assembly, said that they are not going to take up the plan to spend $290 million. But there will be some kind of plan, it seems, to upgrade the Brewers Stadium and to devote some more funding to the Brewers Stadium. So stay tuned for that to see what the state legislature does with the Brewers. I already know the plan. The Brewers pay for their own stadium renovations, and also they extend beer sales past the ninth inning to pay for it.